Church, may I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians this morning. 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. So we continue our study in this wonderful little book. You want to follow along in the uh, Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 987. 987. I will forewarn you, uh, if I can, that uh, we kind of uh, will spend a little bit of time this morning in uh, some controversial waters, uh, in which I will, uh, for many of you, uh, teach against what you believe. Uh, so that's always fun to do, isn't it? So i uh, <laughs> excited to do that, as you're excited to receive that. Um, and we're going we're to do that anyways, because um, that's, I think, well, anyways, a number of reasons, but we'll get into that, won't we? But my hope is, uh, even in telling you that, is, is uh, not for you to immediately put up your defenses. You could do that when we get to point number three, okay? Um, my, my, my hope is, is rather that even if you walk away and say, I don't, I don't think I'd line up with Stephen the way he's explained it on this point, that that wouldn't overshadow everything else we get to celebrate and rejoice in. Can we do that? Amen. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14. Hear now the word of God. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our Father, we do want to be encouraged by your truth today. My great hope and ambition in this message is that your people would be encouraged to look upon a gracious and glorious God, that they would be encouraged to yield more and more of their life to the one you have named Jesus, that they would be encouraged to walk in this wilderness land with a spring in their step, their head lifted high, because you are with them. That we would be encouraged, even as we have just read, that though Christ has ascended to heaven, he is coming again. And when he does, we as his people shall be with him always, forever and ever and ever. And so help us to rejoice in these truths as we consider your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I, I was not a uh, Christian in 1988. I was 14 years old, not a believer, and therefore I was totally oblivious to the best-selling book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Um, and you say, well, I've never heard of such a book. Um, well, uh, if you were around in 88 and you were in the church, you probably did. At least four million people bought a copy of it. Now, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to spoil the ending for you, um, <laughs> but it didn't happen. So, you, I mean, don't run out and buy one and see what's going on. I mean, I don't even know if you can. But the author, by the way, interesting enough, who was a NASA uh, engineer, excuse me, a NASA engineer, far from repenting, after 88 passed, he doubled down and wrote a sequel. Um, my mistake, it's coming in 89. That wasn't the title of the book, which I thought well, that would probably be good, but that was kind of the thrust of his next book. It's in 89. And in that book, he writes, 
At sunset on September 22nd, 1989, a Syrian invasion of Israel will start World War III. Before sunrise of the next day, Moses and Elijah will have destroyed the Syrian forces, and with the Syrian army destroyed, the Magog, which he identifies as the Russian army, led by Gog, which apparently was Gorbachev, now attacks Israel at sunrise on September 23rd, 1989. Meanwhile, Russia and the United States destroy, destroy each other in simultaneous nuclear attacks. It almost reads like fiction, doesn't it? Um, because it is fiction, of course, as we know. Um, and and we, we can laugh at that now, but the distressing thing, I think, is how many Bible-taught Christians believed it or were at least unsettled by it. And by the, just to complete the story, um, when 89 it didn't happen, he said, oh, my bad, I added wrong. Um, it's in 93. When 93 didn't happen, he tried one more time in 94. It seems to me that some people, that um, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who we love dearly, of course, are very preoccupied with the return of Christ. And not just the return of Christ, but the, the timing of the return of Christ. Th- that is, that, that every time there's an earthquake or a hurricane or election or some event in the Middle East, they, they run and they think, well, this must mean that the end is near. Um, and th- this is not just on the extremes of Christian faith. In fact, when the first Gulf War took place, it was John Valrude who teaches at a Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, of course a very respected seminary, wrote his book Armageddon, Oil, and the Middle East Crisis. And the flyleaf reads, never before in history has there been such a chain of events signaling the approach of Armageddon. War in the Middle East, nuclear technology in the hands of rogue states, instability in all the oil markets, terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, threats to wipe Israel off the map, and an alliance between Russia and the Middle Eastern nations. These troubling world events confirm the forecast made by Dr. John E. Valrood, widely recognized as the father of modern biblical prophecy. His predictions once seemed beyond the realm of of possibility, until they begin to happen. And you can almost hear this scary music in the background, right? It's happening, they say. Quite to the contrary, another pastor by the name of John Calvin cautioned his congregation some 500 years earlier to avoid excessive curiosity by investigating what the Lord has hidden, end quote. That might not just be helpful for the believers in 16th century Geneva. It might be helpful for us today. However, that might lead us to the opposite extreme. That is living as if Christ is not returning at all. I see many many people never even consider the second coming of Christ. It has no bearing on their life whatsoever. It it offers no guidance uh, in in how they they deal with trial, how they deal with trouble, how they deal with blessing. It doesn't help them in any way. It seems like Christians tend to live at either extreme when it comes to this issue of Christ's return. And few have mastered that biblical balance, which I think the Bible is calling us to. So what if... The return of Christ is not something that needs to be figured out by reading the newspaper and is equally not a reality that we totally ignore, but is instead a cherished truth that comforts us in trials, encourages us in sacrifice, and comforts us in grief. You will remember, of course, that Paul is writing to grieving Thessalonian believers. These are grieving Christians who we saw last week are mourning their dead. In particular, they are all unsettled about what's going to happen to their dead who died in Christ because they died before the return of Christ. And so they might have been wondering, will they miss out on this glorious advent of the Lord? If their spirits are in heaven, will their bodies remain in the grave? Will we ever see them again? And so Paul begins to exhort them to, in the midst of their grief, to have hope. That Christians do grieve. In fact, I think we're commanded to grieve, but we grieve hopefully. We have hopeful grief, Paul says. Why? How can I grieve with hope? Well, he gives us two reasons. The first we considered last week, looking to the past work of Christ. 
He says there in verse 14, does he not? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so he says, grieve with hope because of what Christ has done on Calvary's hill and three days later with an empty tomb. And it's today which we consider the second reason why we can grieve with hope. And it's not looking to the past, but looking to the future work of Christ, the promise of his glorious return. So we read in verse 14 as we read on, even so, through Jesus, God will bring, future tense, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And it's here now in in verse 14 that he turns his attention to teaching uh, about the return of Christ and will do so all the way through chapter 5 and Verse 8. And in doing so, he provides us with a great deal of understanding about Jesus' return. Namely, he tells us about his return, the resurrection, the rapture, the reunion, and our response to him. And so uh, there you have it. Um, There's an outline, by the way, at least the first four points. I took, I'm taking from John Stott's little, wonderful little commentary on 1 Thessalonians. It's been a huge blessing to me. I thought he outlined this passage beautifully, and so I want to give him credit And then I just want to, if you will, add our response there at the end. So, first of all, let's consider his return. His return. You notice in verse 15, we read, For this we declare to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until, and here's the phrase, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. What does that mean? What do you mean, the coming of our Lord? Well, he tells us in verse 16. Does he not? For he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So the Lord is going to, Lord who is now in heaven, of course our Lord Jesus Christ, who refers to there in verse 14, he himself is going to descend from heaven down to this earth. Jesus is returning. And to that we can all say amen. All right, we're all on the same page. Praise God. Notice, by the way, that he's emphatic, that it is Jesus who's coming. He says there, I think it is in verse 16, does he not? The Lord himself. The Lord himself. Not an angel's coming in his place. Not some kind of lieutenant. He's not sending Moses and Elijah in his stead. It is the Lord himself who's coming. Just as we saw in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended to heaven. Remember that great story as we read in scripture. As they, the apostles, were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Which I think the answer is obvious, right? Because the guy just you know, flew up into heaven. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on. But the point is what? They go on and say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Who? This Jesus. So Christ is returning. It's a personal return. We also learn from this passage that it is a Dramatic return. Dramatic. In fact, we're even given the soundtrack of the event in there in verse 16. For we read, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with, number one, a cry of command. Number two, with the voice of an archangel. And number three, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so you see, accompanying the return of Christ, there will be three thunderous sounds that announce his divine coming. There is a divine command. There is an angelic shout, and there is a triumphant trumpet. This is attention-grabbing, ear-splitting, heart-wrenching sounds to announce he has come. In fact, his return is so dramatic that Jesus himself would say in Matthew 24, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it will be such a profound event that none shall miss it, All shall see it. In fact, evidently, all will hear of it. In fact, look at those three uh, terms uh, in, in order. He says, first of all, his coming will be accompanied by a cry of command. Maybe you have a different version of the Bible, and yours says a commanding shout or a loud command. That phrase is usually used as an authoritative and urgent decree in the midst of great excitement. So it might be used of a captain to his galley rowers in the midst of a storm at uh, at sea, a, a cry of command. It might be used by a general as he calls his cavalry to charge into battle. 
So Jesus, please understand, he's not coming back with some little whimper. He's not going to be whispering when he comes. He's going to be shouting, crying, commanding with the voice of authority and the voice of urgency. And that cry of command will be accompanied by an angelic voice. In fact, the voice of an archangel, or, or we might say the archangel. I don't know uh, how many where it's not defined for us. Uh, with the voice of an archangel, we say. So what's the archangel going to say? We don't know. We're not told. Uh, we, have no, we have no idea what's, what, what's going on. We are, we are told that, uh, again, according to Jesus in Matthew 24, that Jesus says he, referring to himself, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, there's the trumpet again, and will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So evidently at his return, there's a great deal of angelic activity gathering the elect, Jesus says, to himself. And so maybe, maybe I'm totally speculating here, and no, I'm not going to write a book about this, um, that the archangel is saying, to, calling out to the angels, go get them, right? Go after them. But we have, we have no idea. But we do know that that angelic work amidst that angelic voice will be accompanied by the blast of what is called the trumpet of God, God's trumpet. I think that's extraordinary. In fact, if you want a wonderful little Bible exercise this week, grab your concordance and look up the word trumpet and explore throughout the whole Bible why why the trumpet is constantly being blasted. And you will discover that trumpets um, are being blown often in connection with festivals, so calling the people together to feast. They'll be blown in conjunction with rejoicing, calling for times of rejoicing. They'll be called, blown when it's time to gather to worship. I think that'd be fantastic if we started blowing trumpets around 1025, right? And tell them, come on, let's come in and we need to, to worship. We read in Psalm 98, the trumpets reminded the people to make a joyful noise before the arrival of their king, the monarch. So the king's coming, right? And so they blow the trumpet and they're gathering the people to rejoice. So often the trumpet's being blown as a call to worship, gathering people together. We have, a, in our backyard, on our back deck, we have a cast iron bell. Anybody have one of these? And um, we live, as many of you know, in the woods. We're just we're surrounded by poplar forest. And, and so when it's time to, for dinner, for instance, we go out and, and ring the bell, right? And the bell's heard all over, all over the mountain that we live up on. And, and uh, barefoot, grubby little children start dropping out of trees and scurrying out of holes and, you know, cl- scattering over each other to get, get for whatever chow mom made. And so here they come. So it's a gathering sound, just like come and get it sound. Well, this is kind of what the trumpet is. It's this blast to announce this public gathering. It's time to come together and rejoice and, and, and feast and honor the king and, and worship him. Worship him. In fact, I think my favorite, my favorite trumpet blast I discovered in the Bible is found in uh, one of my favorite books that you know, the book of Leviticus. And uh, in Leviticus 25, we're told the trumpet is blasted on the day of Jubilee. Right? The day of Jubilee. How often does that come around? Right? Every, every 50 years, they blow the trumpet. And what happens on Jubilee? Well, redemption. Right? Redemption. All debt is forgiven. All the, all the slaves are set free. Why? Well, one, of course, to bless the people, but ultimately to point us to the final day of liberty for the people of God. When that trumpet is blasted, and we shall finally and fully and eternally be set free from our bondage to sin and our bondage to decay. And we shall find a full and final freedom. I think what an encouragement. I mean, I was thinking about that this week and, 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 and just meditating there in Leviticus 25. What an encouragement that is. Do you understand you who are weighed down with the sin that entangles you or the burdens of this life and the failings of your bodies and the the broken relationships that trouble your soul at night when you just want to sleep? There's a day coming when the trumpet of God shall be blasted 
and Jubilee will finally be here in Jesus. And he shall come and fully and finally and forever redeem us. That's what's going to happen. The trumpet's going to be blasted. Redemption will come. But sadly, it won't be redemption for all. You see, the trumpet, most common use in the Old Testament, is used to announce judgment. It's interesting because it's always used to announce rejoicing. And then the same instrument is used to announce judgment. And I I wonder, is that not pointing us to the return of Christ? For in the return of Christ, it will be the cause of unimaginable rejoicing in some and terrible judgment on others. For the Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 9, for instance, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrows will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds. Or Joel chapter 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. The trumpet will announce the terrible day of the Lord. The Lord will be returning and he will be pouring out his wrath on those who refuse his mercy, his grace. So he comes in judgment and redemption. But he also comes, as you'll note secondly, for resurrection. Resurrection. Look what he says there in verse 15. We'll have to read carefully. For this we declare to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive, okay, so you got those who are living, who are they, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So those who are living when the Lord comes will not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. So the dead in Christ will precede the living in Christ at the return of Christ, okay? What what does he mean precede? In what way will the dead in Christ precede the living? Well, once again, he tells us in verse 16, for this we declare to you by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, that's that group again, who are left until the coming of the Lord, excuse me, then we try verse 16. Here we go. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Here it is. And the dead in Christ will rise first. First. Or, or they will, if you will, they will precede. So the dead in Christ, something happens first. They precede those who are living in Christ. What is it? Well, they'll rise. Rise in what way? Well, they'll be resurrected. In fact, the word rise there is, 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 is one of my favorite Greek words. I don't share with you Greek often, but it's, it's the word for which my first daughter was named, Anastasis. It's every time the word resurrection is in the Bible, it's used, it's the Greek word resurrection, uh, Anastasis. And here it is. It's the exact same word. And he's saying that those who have died in, died in Christ will first, will be the first to be resurrected. Will you be first to have the new glorified and perfect body? So the first thing that happens when Christ returns is the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And we're reminded, I mean, Jesus told us this was coming, I think, at the tomb of Lazarus there in, in uh, uh, was it John 11 or John 12? I, I forget at this point. But there he was, and, and he's at the tomb, and Lazarus is dead, as you know, for four days. And Jesus, Jesus does what? He, he calls out to the dead man. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And by the way, this wasn't a private event. This wasn't Jesus and, and, and a couple other people. I mean, there's the many, many people there. In fact, the whole, the, the outcome of this event really led to Christ's crucifixion. And so they must have thought, can you imagine that? Walking up to a grave. See, if someone's been put in the ground for four days, this man walks up and he calls out to the dead man. And if you were there, and if I were there, we would have thought, this man is crazy. What does he think he's doing? You can't command the dead to come out. And yet suddenly out of the tomb, what happens? Still bound hand and foot, out walks the dead man. But he's no longer dead, of course. He's living. You see, it, 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 the, the, at the voice of God, even the dead must obey him. And not to put words in their mouth, but you wonder if they, they might have thought, what manner of man is this that even the, the dead hear and obey, right? And, and I wonder, to be perfectly honest, and again, I'll just kind of put my toe into uh, speculation here. It's very dangerous to do, I know. But you, you see that cry of command there in verse 16, the cry of command. 
So the question, I think, is what's being commanded? Evidently, at the return of Christ, there will be a loud command. What is it? Okay, we're not told. So we, we, we don't know. But it kind of reminds me of what Jesus taught us in John 5. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. God's, that's God's voice. And what? And come out. Just as, in other words, just as God spoke into the dark void in the ages past and out came creation, so he will once again speak into the darkness of death and out will come life. The dead will hear the command of the creator and they shall obey by living. The Bible tells us this over and over and over again. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, we read God who has raised the Lord will also raise us by his power. In that day, the spirit and the body shall be perfected and reunited in a state of Christ-like perfection. You will have a new body, but it will be the same body. It's your body, not someone else's body. It's a different body. It's the same body. I, I, you're gonna, I, I think, I mean, you're going to look, I assume I'm going to have freckles, right? I think it's going to be me. I'm going to have uh, red hair, I, I imagine. Uh, hopefully a little bit more hair, right? Okay, okay. Right? Oh, I'm going to be bearded, right? I think, in fact, all men probably will be bearded just as Jesus is bearded, right? Um, so it we're, we're, will be the same, and yet, and yet totally, totally different. Totally different. None of, none of the struggles or the difficulties or, or the challenges and the aches and pains and, and, and fi- on that, I'll finally be able to sing on key, right? And that day's coming, and you'll finally be able to clap on rhythm. I mean, it's just going to be just, right? It's going to be wonderful. It's just going to be unbelievable. In fact, oh, we can't even capture it. C.S. Lewis tried when he said, he will, uh, he, uh, he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us, filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly. Right, where it's going to reflect his glory back to him. Though, he says, of course, on a smaller scale, we shall reflect his boundless power, delight, and goodness. Right? And that's what's going to happen. Now, now, remember, he's writing to these troubled Thessalonians who thought their dead ones are going to miss out on this great day. And Paul assures them, saying, no, 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 no. In fact, far from missing, they're, they're, they're going to rise first. And so one day we'll look to the sky and, and we'll see the Lord. And truly it is the Lord who comes, but he will not come alone. The Lord, the resurrected Lord, will come with his resurrected saints. Of course, raising the question, what of those who are alive at his coming? Well, we're told that the believers who are left there will be caught up with him. Or to use the modern language that we use, they'll be raptured. Raptured. We're told this in verse 17. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay? And it's at this point that um, I start offending some of you. Okay? You all ready? Ra- the word rapture is taken from the Latin translation of the Greek word, which we translate into English, caught up. Okay? You all got that? Okay. It's just a, it's the, it's the um, Latin word for caught up, sometimes um, seized, sometimes snatched, grabbed, right? That's what that means. It's just Latin for grabbed or seized. And what we're told here, and this, of course, we all can agree on, that the living Christians at the return of Christ will be caught up to him in the clouds. Now, I do want to say that in all of Scripture, so the, the, listen, the Bible has a lot of verses. In all the verses in the Bible, this is the only verse that clearly teaches the rapture. Now, other verses might imply it. Other verses might hint at it, okay? But none of them can establish the rapture on its own without 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. I say this because it seems like we have attached quite a bit of importance 
on this single doctrine in which the Bible does not at least seem to give it a lot of space in its context, in, in, in the content of the Bible. Right? The Bible gives it really one verse, at least clearly one verse, and yet we modern Christians, and this is a very modern reality, uh, 19, for the first 1,900 years of the church, the people really didn't care about uh, this as nearly as much as we do, and we seem to, in our day, have given a, quite a bit of a t- attention to it, quite a bit of debate over it. And of course, the popular belief is, and many of you would have this belief, I trust, is that the rapture will occur prior to a period of tribulation, uh, and, and sometimes called the Great Tribulation. And that uh, the, the theology that is, is, is taught and embraced by many is that, and the, um, of course many brothers and sisters in Christ, is that Christ secretly returns to snatch the Christians away from the earth, and then he takes them back to heaven, and while they're in heaven, the great tribulation occurs here upon the earth. So he's coming to get the, his Christians and take them out so they don't have to face that. And then after the tribulation is over, he takes those Christians and then he comes back with him. This belief has many names. Um, some, sometimes it's called pre, a pre-tribulation rapture view. That we believe the rapture is pre or before the tribulation. Um, it fits within a, a larger theological framework called dispensationalism. This is what, uh, uh, maybe you've heard that word before. It's been made popular by the Schofield Study Bible. Many of you perhaps even have one. Maybe you have one today. It's a cherished Bible to you. It's taught very strongly, again, at Dallas Theological Seminary, and perhaps it's been most popular in the, in the in last generation or so with the Left Behind series. Now, this would be fun, just by a show of hands. Who's read the Left Behind series? Anyone? So, okay. Right? I wonder, if, other than the Bible, if I could pick a Christian book and, and I would get as many hands up. Um, so it's very, very popular. There are 16 of them. And then, and then you got the children's uh, series once those were written. And then you have the movies and then even the video games. I won't ask who's played the video game, right? And then you have all the, I mean, no one can market something like Christians can market, okay? It's called, now I, have, I did not raise my hand, ref, read the books, um, and so I'm uh, about to stop talking about them. And by the way, no, I don't care to read them, so please don't bring one to me. Um, uh, but it's called Left Behind because it is a, story, a fictional story about those, the rapture comes, the secret rapture in the middle of the night, perhaps. I, I'm not sure exactly how it works. But Christ comes secretly, takes all the Christians out, right? And the planes crash because if a Christian was flying it and the cars crash. And where are all the Christians? We don't know. Um, but what happens with those those who are left behind, the non-believers who are left behind. And uh, this is written, I trust, um, by a a man who loves Jesus, and I'm not in any way calling that into question. Please don't hear that. Now, the primary reason, I think, and many of you might disagree with me, the primary reason people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that is the rapture comes before the tribulation, is that they have a belief that God has a separate agenda for ethnic Jews and the Christian church. And therefore, we need to get the church out of town so God can begin his redeeming work among the ethnic Jews. Now, I believe, by the way, God is going to do a great work among ethnic Jews. I just don't think he needs to remove the church for that. And therefore, many will look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and point to a secret rapture. Here it is. Here's where we learn about the secret rapture seven years before the actual coming of Christ. The problem to me is that it doesn't sound very secret, right? It actually sounds rather noisy. In fact, I think if you were to write what the rapture like, you would be hard-pressed to make it louder than it is. I mean, I don't, who blows a trumpet in secret? I just don't, I, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't get that, right? Why do you blow a trumpet? I think it's to get people's attention so people can can hear. Like, you ever, you ever pull up in a driveway with somebody, and, and uh, you're sitting in the passenger seat, and he starts honking on the horn, and you say, what are you doing? He says, I, I, I'm secretly calling my friend, right? <laughs> right? And you say, well, you may be calling your friend, but it is secret, because the dogs are barking, and neighbors are hollering, you ought to get out your car and go knock on the door, right? You know, there's not, not a secret, right? I, in fact, in my last church, I was privileged to pastor down in southern Virginia, Every, the Sunday before uh, Christmas, uh, 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 Christmas Day, so the, the Sunday immediately preceding Christmas, we would begin our service with the trumpet. Um, 
and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was beautiful and powerful and sometimes not, not well played. And so, um, and it, very startling, um, it's kind of alarming. And I was visiting, I remember visiting some members in the church the following week, and, and they said, why in the world do they have to blast that bloody trumpet every uh, Christmas, right? And they, didn't, they didn't care for it all. I, I, we, Allegra and I, we, uh, we have a, a white noise app on our phone. I don't, you have one of these? We sleep to it. So you could put on like the autumn leaves rustling or the, the country stream or the, you know, the, the, the spring rainstorm. There's no setting for trumpet, okay? Yeah, that's why there's a sleep to the trumpet. Trumpet is not, not, not meant to be secret. And now, and now many, many of you are thinking, I, I can't believe this guy. That doesn't believe in a pre-tribulation secret rapture. I'm, and I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm, just, I'm doing my best to read the passage, and he's blowing a trumpet. And they're shouting. And they're, he's not strumming a harp. He's not whistling a tune. He's not coming out, I'm going to strike the triangle. right? I'm coming and I'm going to blow a trumpet. Now, um, and so the idea that this is secret doesn't seem to me to bear the weight of the text. I don't, I don't see it here in Scripture. Now, uh, just by way of footnote, I, I used to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I know the arguments. I've seen the charts. Okay? So please don't send me the emails this week. Um, <laughs> As to, okay, well, pastor, what about this? And what I, I know about what this and this and this. And I used to believe it. And then, to be honest, I read First Thessalonians 4 and said, well, how does that work? And then I read Second Thessalonians, which is a whole other uh, time together, isn't it? And so um, I, I don't think he's coming before the tribulation. I think he's coming after the tribulation, that there is one return of our, our Lord. In fact, you know what we do agree on? And let's get back to what we agree on, right? Is that he is coming, right? He is coming. And... And whether that happens before the tribulation or after the tribulation or during the tribulation or on top of the tribulation or, you know, underneath the tribulation, whatever preposition you want to use, right? whatever, whenever, we know that he is coming. He's coming. And he is coming uh, with great power to bring redemption. In fact, I think we do learn a little bit about his coming there in verse 15 with a word that... Um, Again, I, I don't often like to do this, but it might be helpful for us. You see that, that, that phrase there that my Bible translates um, there in, in verse 15, until the coming of the Lord. That, that word uh, coming is, is a technical Greek word, and maybe if you've ever studied this, you've come across it because people like to use it. It's the word parousia. Some of you have heard that before, parousia. And parousia is not originally a Christian word. It's a technical word to describe the arrival of a dignitary. And so when Caesar would come to a city, his arrival would be described as the parousia of Caesar. Uh, when when, a, when a, a leader would come, it would be the parousia of that individual. And what would happen is that a delegation of citizens would be set outside to receive the king or the dignitary and then escort him back into the city on, the fi- on his final leg of the journey. Right? And so the great uh, church father, John Chrysostom, said when preaching on this passage, for when a king drives into a city, those who are honorable go out to meet him, but the condemned await the judge within. So what happens when, uh, when, when the living meet Jesus in the clouds, when they're raptured? Do we go back to heaven? Do we come down to earth? He doesn't tell us, let's be honest. So we can't be overly dogmatic. But the word that Paul uses... I think implies not being caught up and taken away, but to, be, to go out and meet him and then escort him back into the earth that he has come to redeem and to rule. Now, I think this is what's going to happen, that Jesus, the conquering king, comes. He comes with his army of resurrected saints, his supporters who still live on this earth, joyfully go out of the city to meet him, and then with all his subjects around him, escort the triumphant ruler down upon the earth, which he now takes authority over. Of course, in the midst of all of that, we will have a great reunion. Reunion number four. You notice we will be reunited with one another. And we don't want to skip over these words. There's, a, there's almost a throwaway phrase that I think are so important there in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And here it is, together with them. You can read right over that, right? Together with them. Why does he put that in there? Again, he's writing to mourning Christians who have concerns about their dead loved ones. And he's saying, listen, you understand when all this happens, the living and the dead who are in Christ will be 
together. We'll be with them. And my friends, is not the hardest thing in your life, or at least one of them, is saying goodbye to those you love? Do you like saying goodbye? All right, I mean, if it's in-laws, maybe, but other than that, right? Okay. No, 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 you don't. It's hard. It's hard. I'm not going to see you for a while. I may never see you. That's hard. I want you to understand, you'll never have to say goodbye again. You'll never have to part again. The grave is not the end. Death is not final. Separation is not permanent. You will be with your loved ones again. Just as we sometimes sing when the blessed who sleep in Jesus at his bidding shall arise from the silence of the grave and from the seas. And with bodies all celestial, they shall meet him in the skies. What a gathering and rejoicing there will be. There will be. And we will be with each other. And I think we, there, we will be within God's glory. I, there's another little phrase in there that we could just read right over and throw away. But you notice he says there in verse 17, we, together with them, here it is, three words, in the clouds. In the clouds. Why, why is that there? Because read on, we're told we're going to be up in the air to meet with the Lord in the air. What, why, why, is, was this a weather forecast? Is it going to be a cloudy day? Right? Is that what we're learning? No, I think there's something more going on here. And again, I don't want to be overly dogmatic, but I do, I do remind you that the manifestation of the glory of God is almost always referred to as a cloud. The presence of God is found in the glory cloud. And we see this as soon as they come out of the Red Sea, they sing their song of praise. And as soon as Aaron spoke, Exodus 16, to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked to the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And then we read the cloud overshadowed Sinai. The cloud filled the tabernacle and sent Moses running the other way. The cloud filled uh, the temple and Solomon's dedication. When Jesus hiked up to the Mount of Transfiguration, was it not the cloud of God that descended upon him? And we read that God spoke not from heaven, but from the cloud that enshrouded Christ. We already saw in Acts 1 this morning, he ascended into what? The clouds. And we're told in Daniel 7, I believe it is, when he returns, I saw the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. I think this is a reference to the very presence and glory and manifestation of God. I think when we are up there with one another, we will be enveloped in the presence and the glory of God as we are finally reunited with Jesus. For you see there at verse 17, and this in many ways is the climax of the, the whole passage. For we will meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We'll finally be with the Lord. Now let me ask you, how long shall we be with the Lord? <laughs> Forever. Forever. Always. Always. Is that your longing? You want to be with the Lord? Would you be happy in heaven without Jesus? I mean, think about it. You get, you get, you get uh, no sickness, no aches and pains, no sin. Right? Um, you, all the food you, you want, right? None of the weight gain. Right? Okay? Um, no suffering. All your friends. Never fighting with anybody ever again. You get, you get I mean, just be, beauty am, uh, uh, among beauty that we can't even imagine. But no Jesus. I, you, uh, I share with you often, I, I continually return to the mountains. Um, just uh, this summer, I took uh, my oldest son, uh, Josiah, and we spent six days in the deep back country in uh, Wyoming, in the, um, in, uh, the Rockies there in Wyoming. And then I just took six of my kids down uh, outside of Roanoke on the Appalachian Trail. We spent a week out there hiking. And in just a couple of weeks, I'm going to take my six-year-old daughter, Eden, on her first backpacking trip up in West Virginia. And, um, you know, I'm constantly going um, back into the mountains. Because when I get in the mountains, something happens to me. And I, I feel like I'm home. I just, there's something in my heart that happens. Um, uh, my, my soul begins to sing. My troubles fall away. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why Lager and I can never take an Alaskan cruise. Uh, because if I see the mountains and not get in them. I need to get lost in them. Just to see them and not be able to explore them would be like looking at a great banquet, but you're not allowed to eat it, right? And that's not a blessing. That's just frustration, 
right? Because they calls to you and says, to taste me, right? The mountains called to me. I see them and they called to me. Come, go, go, hike me, get lost to me. See what's over that hill. Go explore and, and, and look. But the thing is, for me, it's not just the mountains. It's not just, wow, this is really beautiful and majestic. Though it's part of that. It's the one who made the mountains. And when, when, I, when I'm in the mountains, I can't help but pray. Something happens. When I'm in the lowlands, Praying's hard for me. I have to remind myself to pray. I have to schedule prayer. I have to think, okay, I got to pray. When I'm in the mountains, I'm just praying all the time. I'm singing all the time, which is a good, so good thing that we're in solitude up in the mountains, right? right? But I'm, I'm just singing. I just sing. I just feel like singing all the time. I, 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 feel, I, feel, I feel close to my God, and I just want to talk to him, and I want to sing to him, and, I, and I, 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 want to, I want to rejoice in his goodness. See, and for, you, for you, it's not the mountains. It's the beach or it's, it's the grandkids or it's, you know, men in tights chasing an oblong ball or whatever it is, right? Okay? And, and it's, you, just, you just find such joy in that, right? But just you understand, all these gifts of God, they're not, not, to, not to end in themselves. They're to point us on to the one who, who has given them. They're all pointers to him. He says, I'm just like that, but I'm 10,000 times better than it. And to want heaven without Christ is like a child who wants all of daddy's gifts on Christmas morning, but doesn't care if daddy's there at all, right? The gifts are wonderful. The kids like gifts. I like gifts. But to want the gifts and not the giver, there's something wrong there. You know, the kid that, that has the, her right mind says, I want daddy. And so the Christian cry is not simply, I want heaven. The Christian cry is not simply, I just want this pain to end. Though we want the pain to end, I don't want to minimize that. But the Christian cry in the deep, dark, uh, deep uh, roots of their soul is, I want Jesus. I just want Christ. I want, I want to kiss his feet. I mean, literally, I want to plant my lips on it. I never kiss him his feet in my life. I want to kiss his feet. I want to see the nail print. Don't you want to see that? I want to feel... What, what it is to be in the presence of unmitigated holiness. I want to know what unfailing love is like. I want to look at his lips when he looks, me, looks at me and says to me, Stephen, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want Jesus. Do you want Jesus? My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that's where we're headed. We will be with him always, forever. And so what do we do? Well, our time is up, so I must be quick. But there is a response, isn't there? For we see in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Okay? We need to encourage. Encourage the grieving with these words. Encourage the anxious with these words. Encourage the uncertain with these words. Encourage the greedy with these words, that we need to remind each other of these truths because we forget. The Lord is coming back, but we forget. I like the story that Pastor Howell tells when he says, a few years ago while visiting a small Argentina town in the foothills of the Andes Mountains, I was awestruck by the surrounding of the beauty of the landscape. From nearly every vantage point in town, I could see the towering peaks off in the distance. Curious, I asked the local shop owner, if he ever tired of seeing the majestic mountains, I will never forget his reply. I hardly even notice them. He concludes, how could it be possible for one to be surrounded by the majesty of the Andes Mountains and yet miss their beauty? Well, my brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by something far more beautiful, majestic. We are surrounded by the promise that Christ is coming. He's coming with our loved ones. He's coming to raise the dead. He's coming that we might be with him forever. It is a towering promise that should overshadow every aspect of our life, and yet we miss its beauty because we fail to look. We fail to hope, and therefore our lives are filled with frustration and worry, and my counsel for you, even as I try to encourage you now, is to look up. Look up and find hope that this is not the only life you get to live. This is just the prelude to life. Look up and realize that you don't need to get your comfort here and wring everything out of this life here. Look up and realize Jesus is coming and he is coming for his church and we who believe in him shall be with him always. And that ought to be an encouragement to us. It ought to be. I wonder if it is for you.
So I've already mentioned, um, he's come, it will be an encouragement for only those who he's coming to redeem. He's not coming to redeem everyone. There are some who have refused his mercy and his grace. And when he comes at that time, he will come as a judge. It's either judgment or redemption at his coming. And for those who, who will not yield their life to King Jesus, he will come in wrath. He will come in judgment. And yet I, I offer you great hope today that you could receive his mercy even now. You could bow your knee to Jesus in faith and believe that he died on the cross for your sin and was risen from the dead and yield your life to him in repentance and faith. And he shall save you. And he shall come as your king and as your redeemer at that day. In fact, we now come to this Lord's Supper. And what, what we're doing is we're remembering the work of salvation, certainly. But at the same time, we're also proclaiming his return. Remember Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he says, I, I will not drink of this cup with you again. Not period, but comma, until, right, that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So it's coming a day in which we shall take the Lord's Supper together. We shall celebrate this together. That's why Paul said, as we recite every time we do this, when you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? We're proclaiming he's coming. So even now as we prepare our hearts for this table, let's not just remember what he has done. Let, let the, these emblems feast our soul in anticipation of the feast that is yet to come when he returns. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful and our hearts are filled with gratitude and delight that our Lord is coming for us and that even as your scripture says, he is coming soon. We pray that that soon might, might even be this very day. And if not today, um, if you tarry, May we live in light of these truths. May we not forget that we live a life while we wait. We're waiting for one to come, for one that we might be with forever. And so help us to rejoice in that. We even pray for those who have yet to trust in Christ as their Savior, that they would despair of whatever they're trusting in, their own goodness, their own works, their own religious rituals, and realize there is only hope only one hope, only one redemption, and that is our Lord Jesus. And so we ask that you do all this for your glory, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.